Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those who were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah, who was a just man. Uh, excuse me, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark. And you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing the flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life and everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive." And you shall take for yourselves of all the food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. <clears throat> so he did. Lord, thank you <clears throat> Excuse me for your word this morning. May you add your blessing to the reading of the word. May you take these wonderful things that you speak to us here, and as well as these horrendous things about the condition of man and how things had already in just a few generations progressed to a point of, of complete wickedness. God, teach us this morning the things that we need to know and to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. 
well, quite uh, an interesting uh, portion of Scripture. And you may recall, as we uh, completed chapter 5 last week, that we looked at how the names of the 10 generations of the first 10 generations of people was listed out for us there in chapter 5, that it spelled out um, a little message for us. And so we looked at Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And as we put their meanings of their names together, we saw that uh, it reads, man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest. And so we looked at that amazing picture of the gospel right there in the Old Testament And there's an old saying, I don't know who first coined this, but I've heard it many times. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So we see here, as we enter into chapter 6, we now focus on the generation of Noah and what God is doing in and through the life of Noah. So when we come to verse 1... You might have a subtitle there in your Bible that says something like increasing corruption on the earth. Now keep in mind here as we enter into Noah's time, again, that he is the 10th generation from Adam. So in a mere 10 generations, the earth and the people on the earth and the behavior of people has degenerated to an incredibly low point. So let's look here at these first four verses this morning, one of the most interesting and debated passages in all of Scripture, certainly in the Old Testament. Genesis 6-1, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves uh, of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So as we enter in this morning, there is a a very interesting story here. And we find that this word is used here in verse 4, the term giants. And the term giants is the Hebrew word Nephilim. And it means the fallen ones. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, that word Nephilim is translated giants. And um, it's interesting that there's sort of a crossover to Greek mythology. Uh, this word Genogies is used for the word titans, and it refers to the interbreeding of Greek gods with humans. And it's the, the root word there, genea, means breed or kind, and the derived English word would be genes or genetics from that root word. And so as we consider this this morning, when we look at these, these verses, we find here that men began to multiply, so a population explosion sort of develops on the earth during this time. And as this population explosion begins to happen, uh, it says here in verse two that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, 
that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves. So the, the debate here, the question is, who were the sons of God and, and who or what is that referring to? So we'll come to that in just a moment. But where it says, and the, the Lord um, said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So prior to this point in the genealogies, if you go back to chapter five, you can see that people were living 700, 800, 900 years. And now at this point, because of the extremes of sin and because of the perversion of what man has been doing, God has said, I will limit man's lifespan to a maximum, it seems, of 120 years. And then we find that between these sons of God uh, mating with women, that there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. So the two prevailing views here are that uh, the sons of God, this phrase is referring to the sons of Seth listed earlier in chapter five, uh, the lineage of the sons of Seth, because as we looked at the genealogy, it said Adam, then Seth. And then uh, what most people believe on that view is that the sons of Seth uh, were mating with the daughters of Cain and that Cain's line was very corrupt because of his sin and that uh, that's what this is referring to. The other view is that this is referring to fallen angels or demonic spirits. So we wanna take a moment and look at this. Now, this issue of the sons of Seth, as we look at that and as we consider it and you, you go out and you read all this material, uh, this is pure speculation. It's just a theory that this is referring to the sons of Seth. And the way that most of the people who hold to this stated is something like the sons of Seth, the line of Seth was a righteous line. It was a godly line. And the line of Cain uh, with his daughters and his descendants was an ungodly and unholy line. And the two should not have mixed. The problem with that theory is that is nowhere stated in the scriptures. It is pure speculation. And while it's a little fanciful and people attempt to make sense of it that way, they do that because of the second view, which is the view that these are fallen angels and demonic spirits. So let's just take um, a look at that. In the Old Testament, the references to the sons of God are very unique, and I've listed them here for us. So in Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. In Job 2.1, we see the same thing happening again. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And then in Job 38, we find again the same phrase used, uh, where it's, it's, you know, the Lord is talking to Job and asking him questions about what he understood about the world and how the world was formed. And in verse uh, six there, it says, to what were its foundations fastened, who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so what we see here is that in these occurrences that each time it's referring to angels or angelic beings the sons of God coming before God to present themselves as talking about the angelic host in uh, all three of these. 
And in verse, uh, chapter 38, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together, that phrase is often a reference to the angelic host as well. And again, it says, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So uh, in the Old Testament and the, and the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the sons of God are always used to refer to angels or to angelic beings. So it would seem we're on safe ground with that, but wait, there's more. As we go to the New Testament, we find that there's a commentary on this passage of scripture and on this event that is chronicled for us here in a few places. So in 1 Peter chapter three, Peter seems to give the strongest commentary on this. And it says here, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. So it would seem that these angelic beings who committed this atrocious act in Genesis 6 were imprisoned by the Lord. So let's look on to 2 Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So again, Peter commenting on this, referring to not only just the fall of Satan and the angels in general, but it seems specifically calling out the issue of these angels and their act against God. And in Jude chapter uh, 1, verse 6, there's only one chapter in Jude, it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So here's the picture as it seems to be emerging for us. The picture is that these angels who had fallen, and in the Revelation chapter 12, we're told that these angels, there was a third of them who fell uh, with Satan. He took a third of the heavenly host with him. And that when these angels fell, it would seem that they wanted to cross a boundary that God had set for them, that is, that angels should not interact with men in this way, certainly not in a sensual or a sexual way. And so these fallen angels crossed a line and they mated with uh, human women and that's what's spelled out for us here in Genesis chapter six. And in this scenario, something happened. First of all, we know that Satan already was attacking uh, the godly line in Genesis 3.15, remember God had given a prophecy that he would send a Messiah that who would one day come and that he would take the sin of mankind and there would be this conflict between the serpent and between the seed of the woman who is the Messiah. Number one. Number two, we saw that already because of sin and because of the fall of man, 
that marriage itself, the institution of marriage that God himself established in the garden was also already under attack. So with this perversion of the intermarrying of fallen angelic beings with women, we have nothing more than an outright attack upon marriage itself. And so these angels did not stay within the realm and the abode that was given to them by God. It's interesting that when we read in the Gospels uh, that there was, whenever Jesus was, was casting demons out, often he, he made statements like uh, the demons were seeking something to inhabit. They were seeking a host. There's a few references for that, but here's one of them. In Luke chapter 11, verse 24, Jesus said, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came, meaning the person from whom he was cast out, and when he comes, he will find it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now we also know concerning angels that in the Bible when we have angels appearing to men, they often do so in human bodily form, don't they? And as we, we read through these and we have some coming up in Genesis, we see it in so many occasions, we see it when the angel appears to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. We see as the angels appear to Abraham by the trees of Mamre. And there are so many other places that, you know, we could just go through a list. The point is that while angels or angelic beings are spirit beings, they often are allowed to take the form of a human being and how they manifest themselves to people. And then we have, you know, the cases of demon possession uh, all throughout the Bible, but especially in the New Testament, uh, where uh, evil spirits inhabit the bodies of people. So... This issue of Seth seems to me to be nothing but pure speculation. This issue of are these angelic beings, falling, fallen angels, demonic spirits, I think that is the most plausible. And that to me speaks to this issue that we've just been reading here in Genesis chapter 6 of how God felt he needed to do something about this because now a line of human beings has sort of come into existence that is... <clears throat> a strange lineage. And we aren't told anymore in the scriptures about that, how they are made up and what they look like and what that composition might have been. But uh, certainly from a, from a fanciful uh, or fantasy kind of point of view, if you think about an angel intermarrying or, or you know, having a, a relationship with a human female, you could certainly imagine all sorts of things that could come from that kind of a union. And so the Lord was grieved by this. And it says in verse 3, the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. You see, man, in this case, women, and perhaps even the parents of these women, had allowed or, or perhaps even encouraged these kinds of unions. And we don't know how these angelic beings presented themselves and what form they took, but it would seem like they were probably very large. And of course, later in the scriptures, we have 
uh, after the flood, during the time of Moses, when the spies went out into the land in Numbers 13, we find that they said there were giants in the land, and we find people like Goliath, who was nine foot three, and we find the Rephaim and others who are listed, the king of Og, who it's, rep- it's port- reported to us in the scriptures that his bed was 13 feet long. We find still the occurrence of these people after the flood, uh, at least the large people, the, the tall people, who were, you know, could be considered giants or anomalies. We don't know if those are the same as these people here who had intermarried these angelic beings, but certainly something happened by what God has said that has created such a, a corruption and a perversion of mankind that the Lord says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. And then he goes on to say there were giants in the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in and they bore children. And then in verse 5 it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is now the estate that man has come to as he has progressed through these 10 generations, and now the earth is in such a condition that God has said what he once called good in chapter 1. He now in chapter 5 is saying, there's no hope. I must destroy the earth and destroy every person on it who will not repent and return to the Lord. And so when the Lord says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, that brings up, I think, the issue for us now in the context here, we have to consider it, uh, what's happened. But what would test God? What would bring him to the limits of making such a statement, of saying something like, I will not strive with man forever, it's over. And the question is, There seems to be, in the scriptures, a number of times these ideas are mentioned to us, that God comes to a place where he's tired of striving with man in general or with a person over an issue. And you know, we don't want to know where that line is, do we? Does anyone here listening today want to test the limit of that line with God? Do you want to explore the boundaries of the grace of God? Do you want to test the limits of how far God is willing to let you go in your sin? Jesus said regarding the issue of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is a a kindred idea in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, he who was not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So the issue here, I think, let me just get rid of this here. Sorry. There we go. I think the issue here is this. With God's striving with 
uh, or his spirit striving with mankind. If we put it in the context of where we are today, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I believe first and foremost, this refers to an unbeliever struggling against the call of God, struggling against the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God being manifest to that person. And that person continually resisting over and over and over. We know in a similar way once we get to the story of Pharaoh in Egypt. And uh, the Lord had said, let my people go. And through Moses, he was working signs and wonders and making a testimony to Pharaoh. There came a point in the struggle with Pharaoh where God was saying over and over and over, his heart was hard. But then the point came where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes we struggle with that, but I think the simplicity of that is God simply looked at the situation. God is all-knowing and all-powerful. And he knew that that man, Pharaoh, he could see the beginning from the end because he is the Alpha and the Omega. And he said, I'm just going to go ahead and bring forward the inevitable result, which is his heart is hard and he is not going to change. He's not going to repent. So you have to understand that for God to give up on a person, it's bad. It's extreme. It's the the worst of the worst. And when we have Jesus talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the same idea, which is someone resisting God, that that's a frightful thing. And so let me say this morning to anyone who is listening who maybe you've not yet trusted the Lord or maybe as a believer, you're testing the boundaries and the limits and the edges and the fringes of sin. This is a place that you don't want to be. You don't want to be out there testing those limits. And if the Lord has been speaking to you and you've never trusted Christ, you've never given your heart to him, All I can tell you from the scriptures is this, there could come a day before your death when God says you're done because of the hardness of your heart. And I hope that that is not the case because I believe the scriptures teach us, even in examples like the thief on the cross, that as long as there's breath, there's hope. And as long as we continue to just hope and pray as as many of us here do for people in our lives whom we know who are not yet believers, who've not yet trusted Christ. We pray as we hold out hope against hope that they, they will turn, that they will repent and that they will give their lives to the Lord. So we wanna encourage you this morning as the Lord says in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Praise God for that, amen? Sin always grieves the heart of God. And we don't want our relationship with God to be lived out in a state of grieving. Well, in verse five, as we continue this, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
that every intent and the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was very sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. You see, God is not just destroying man, but he's destroying his creation. He's destroying the animals. You see, sin has infected everything. And we need to know this about sin. Sometimes we think our sin only affects us. Well, it's just my choice. If it were just your choice and it didn't affect anyone else, why within the span of 10 generations... From the creation of man, would God have come to the point that he, he says, I have to destroy this thing. It's gotten so out of control that there's no hope. For God to come to that point, you have to understand, God, the God of eternal mercy, the God of eternal grace, the God of eternal love, for him to come to the place where he says, that's it, I have to destroy everything? You see, sin can even affect and mar creation. Sin infects even the animal kingdom. How that happens, we don't know. But we know that sin is sinful. Sin is like a disease. Sin is like a virus. And it infects everything and everyone with whom it comes in contact. And we find these amazing words of grace in verse eight, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first mention of grace in the Bible. This word found is an active perfect verb, meaning that he was looking for it. Noah was looking for the grace of God. This word found has some interesting uh, examples for us. It says Adam found no helpmate suitable for himself. That means he was looking for that person. Later we'll find out that Noah's dove, when he sent it out, did not find rest. It found no place to land. The dove was looking for somewhere to land, but the only place to land was on the ark. So the idea here for Noah Noah found grace, it says, in the eyes or in the sight of the Lord. Are you looking for the grace of God? God is so gracious. He's put it out there. See, nowhere has he more clearly demonstrated grace than at the cross of Jesus Christ. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, meaning the one who would satisfy the wrath of God against sin. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We saw in our study of the book of Revelation the number of times that God himself made a way to preach the gospel to the the tribulation people and to offer salvation to them. He gave them 144,000 Jewish witnesses 
to go throughout the earth preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. God himself did everything he could to make Jesus and salvation accessible to every human being, whoever has been born and whoever will be born. You see, our God is a gracious God. God's grace saves us. God's grace enables us. Grace keeps us on the right path. Grace is God looking at us with merciful and loving eyes. Grace is God giving us that which we don't deserve. Some have said grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, grace comes to us by faith, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We are told in the New Testament that Noah, in one of the verses we just read, was a preacher of righteousness. And so we know that Noah not only found grace in the sight of God, but Noah, during this time, as God is about to give him the instructions for this ark that he wants him to build and how to prepare for the flood. And whenever we speak of the flood, in your mind, you should automatically substitute for that word flood the judgment of God. Because that's what the flood was. The flood was the judgment of God upon the earth and upon the sin of mankind. And so we find here in verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man or a righteous man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Here we have the first mention of a person being just or righteous. So Noah is called this just or this righteous man. And like his ancestor Enoch, it says that Noah walked with God. Remember, as we looked last week at Enoch, it said that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And we looked at that as a type of the rapture where God took Enoch out of the, the path of life. For whatever reason, Enoch had so pleased God and God had a divine purpose and plan that he just took Enoch right off the face of the planet. Enoch did not have to experience the pains of death. And here Noah is walking with God, and we find that in this description of him as being just or righteous, that he was a man of integrity, that he was blameless, that he was above reproach. And now as he walked with God, you have to question in the midst of this crooked and this perverse generation that Noah lived in, and the earth having degenerated to such a point that God was ready to judge it and wipe everybody out, what caused Noah to be a man of faith, to be a man of grace? Here's one commentator's point of view, and I, I like it very much, which is why I'm sharing it. And he says, Noah must have learned this important truth from his father Lamech, who learned it from his father Methuselah, who learned it from his father Enoch. Remember, Enoch walked with God and was not. How important it is to teach our children and our grandchildren and the generations how to trust the Lord. Noah's great-grandfather Enoch had walked with God and was suddenly taken to heaven and rescued from the impending judgment of the flood. Noah walked with God and was taken safely through the judgment. What a picture that these men of faith starting with Enoch, just in this, in this situation, 
Enoch a man who loved God and who was pleasing to God. And we know that Enoch was a man who also had a strong witness as we looked at this last week. And now we find here his, uh, I guess it would be his great-grandson, is now walking with God in much the same way that he did. And so just the importance that we need to teach our children and our children's children. And by the way, any end time we are given influence over kids or over the next generation, whether it's our own kids or someone else's, we should take it, meaning in the sense of training them up and teaching them about the Lord and how to honor the Lord and what faith in God is all about. And we're told here that Noah begot three sons. Noah now presumably passing along to his three sons his own faith in the things that he had learned. The earth also was corrupt before God, verse 11, and the earth was filled with violence. Now, isn't it interesting? I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, aren't we at the same place? We are in the same place right now, I believe, uh, at least in terms of violence. I mean, we haven't reached a place where God's going to destroy the earth, or so it seems, but it does make you wonder how patient God is for the days that we're living in, certainly seem violent and perverted and corrupt. And in verse 12, so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So this is now the condition of man. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God now saying he's going to destroy them through the earth. And in 2 Peter 2, 5, that's where it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness And we know that Noah was preaching this righteousness probably for the entire time of his existence. Now we're told uh, just previously that Noah in chapter 5 was 500 years old before he had kids. And so his kids, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, came to him when he was 500 years old. And so we're finding out now that by the, the scripture's description of Noah... It would seem that for 500 years, he's been a preacher of righteousness, and he will continue to be so for uh, the balance of his life. <clears throat> We're told in <clears throat> excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah feared God. Shall I remind you this morning of these amazing things just written in the book of Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord, God said, they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely 
and will be secure without fear of evil. What an amazing promise there in Proverbs chapter 1 about following the Lord, the importance of following God. Listen to Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate, says the Lord. So God wants us to put these things in perspective. You see, as believers, as Christians, we are not to become comfortable with the world. We are not to come to a place in our life where we are just okay with violence and sin and the way things are. You see, these are the things that caused God himself here in Genesis chapter 6 to make a decision, to declare that man was not good any longer and that he had degenerated to a place of requiring immediate judgment. In verse 14, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. Verse 15, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the doors the door of the ark in its side, you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So God gave Noah a divine communication, a divine set of plans for building a boat, an ark, and he told him the materials that he should use and how he should do it. He said, use gopher wood which is, as we understand it, is something similar to redwood, something that's sturdy, has substance to it. And he said, as you build this ark, cover it inside and out with pitch or tar to waterproof it. The length of the boat, as we translate these cubits to um, our measurements, the length would be about 450 feet. The width would be about 75 feet and the height would be 45 feet. When we take this and we calculate it out, we find out that would be about 1.5 million square feet inside this ark. We also understand if we just take something more common to us today, a standard railroad stock car, that the ark would have fit a little more than 522 railroad stock cars. And these stock cars, of course, were for transporting animals and that would equate to the, about 125,000 sheep if we were just trying to put a measure on it. So God had now commanded Noah to do this, to build this ark. And as he built it, he had to do it according to God's standards, God, God's way. And as he was doing it, it's interesting, the Lord said, just put one door in the ark, one in the side, and it's interesting to me, there's so many things that the ark can speak to us of in terms of a type, but the ark, if we look at it as a type of salvation, and there's only one door, what does that make you think of? John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Lord, how long will it take to build this thing that you're commanding me to build? 
There are some people who believe that because the Lord had shortened in verse 3 the lifespan of mankind to be 120 years, that it would have been 120 years. However, if you look back at chapter 5, verse 32, Noah was 500 years old when he had his sons. And in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, it says that Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came. So it would seem that about 100 years passed as Noah was building the ark and obeying the command of the Lord. And you can only imagine, because the scriptures don't tell us this explicitly, that as Noah was out probably in the wilderness building this ark, that as the people came out, they probably saw the crazy old man out in the wilderness building a boat in the middle of somewhere where there was no water. And as he was building this ark, and we're told again from, from Peter's account that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I have no doubt in my mind that Noah was preaching God's judgment and that he was building a boat and that if you get on this boat with me, you're going to be saved. And just imagine how crazy that sounded to those people. Sounds a little bit like today you walk up to somebody on the street who's never heard of any of this. And you say, do you realize that you're a sinner and that you need a savior? And his name is Jesus. And 2000 years ago, he died on a cross. He, he died a, a horrible criminal's death. He paid a capital offense for a crime he didn't commit to save a people whom he loved but never knew because he wanted them to have a relationship with his father who is the Lord God Almighty who is the one who created all of this, and he created you. Do you think that might sound a little crazy? Do you think it might sound crazy that if you get on this boat with me, you'll be saved? Verse 17, and behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. I cannot imagine what those words sounded like as they fell on the ears of Noah from the voice of God. And he says in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. The first use of the word covenant, where God makes a covenant with man. You see, God is the initiator, man is the responder. This is a theme we see all throughout the scriptures. So God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah. Noah, you found grace, you found favor in my sight. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of into, uh, of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. It's interesting here that God says, I'm going to bring them to you. You see, Noah doesn't, didn't have to go on the divine scavenger hunt to find all the animals. God said he would bring them to him when the time was right. Imagine the faith that it took for Noah to believe God 
And to believe these things about God, not only for, for the 500 years he's already been alive, but now for the next 100 years, as he is spending this time, he and his family laboring to build this ark, this boat, in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. And God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring them to you. And I want you to know, Noah, that I'm faithful, that I'm going to enable you, that I'm going to give you everything you need. You know, imagine God saying these things to Noah, and Noah maybe standing there saying, Lord, where are we going to get the money for this? Where are we going to get all these materials? Where are we going to get the pitch? Where are we going to get the methods of the, the tools for doing the carvings? Where are we going to get the methods of attachment as we build this structure? But Noah didn't have to ask those questions, did he? Because God simply said, I'm going to do it. I want you to do this, and I'm going to do that. You see, the details were in the hand of God. And often, here's what happens. Here's how God works. And if you've never figured this out, let today be a revelation to you. As we walk forward in faith, God makes things clear. As we do the right thing, as we obey the Lord, as we walk in faith, things become clear. The problem we have today in our faithless age, and I mean that with respect to the church, is we want to have everything figured out before we take a step. And that is not how faith works. We are going to see over and over and over, Noah's just one of the first ones, but we're going to see it over and over and over through the book of Genesis. God's going to say, do something. He's going to make a command. And these people who are hearing the voice of God are going, they have a choice to make. Do I believe God and follow him and do what he says? Or do I stop and ask him a bunch of questions? Well, Lord, what about this? And what about that? Remember, we, we just looked uh, back through Christmas and again through Easter about how God spoke to people, how, you know, how God spoke to um, Zechariah, how God spoke to uh, Joseph and Mary. And when people respond in faith and say, oh, Lord, may it be to me as you have said. Praise the Lord. God, God's grace and favor to them was amazing. But when people questioned God and they had doubts and unbelief toward God and like, yeah, God, but I got some questions. How are you going to do this? Remember Zechariah lost his voice for nine months because of his unbelief. But when he was finally allowed to speak on the day that his son was circumcised, he's like, amen, praise the Lord, glory, hallelujah. His name's John, praise God, right? He, at that moment, he couldn't say anything but good about the Lord. And you see, the Lord wants us to learn like Noah. When God speaks to us through his word, or maybe he even gives us a word in our heart, that that word has been given not only to bring comfort and hope and to inspire us in the journey ahead, but to give us understanding that as we walk forward, we walk in faith. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Gather food for yourself. Get ready. Thus Noah did According to all that God commanded him, so he did. The faithfulness of God, God's calling is God's enabling. 
So for what we believe to be a hundred years, Noah labored in this calling and got ready for something that had never happened on the earth, which was a flood. I imagine they had had rain before, but not like this. And we're going to find out as we get into chapter 7 and 8 and 9, the days ahead, the journey ahead for Noah and his family. So what do we learn today about the Nephilim and Noah? Well, we don't want to be like the Nephilim. We don't want to identify with them in any way. We don't want to test the limits and the boundaries of sin. We don't want to find ourselves in the place where we are pressing against God or as the Lord said when he spoke to Paul on the the road to Damascus, when he said to Paul or to Saul, rather, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You see, we don't want to be there. Where we want to be is in the place where Noah was. Regardless of what's happening around us, don't get your eyes on the world. Don't get your eyes on the things that are happening. Don't focus on the unrighteousness of the world. Focus on the righteousness of God. Focus on the faith that he has called us to and the things that he's called us to. You see, coronavirus or no coronavirus, flood or no flood, God's calling for his people is that we stand up and preach the gospel. I don't care what the governor does, to be honest with you. I do care that he's called us to stand up and preach the gospel no matter what the governor does. I'm not saying I don't care about him, you know, putting unrighteous restrictions on the church or anything like that, or any governor for that matter. Of course we do. But what we care about is doing the right thing according to faith. God has called us to be people of faith. I don't believe God has called us to be political activists. Does God want to put people of faith in office? Absolutely, and I hope he does. But our hope is not in this world, and this world is not going to improve or get better. We are on a journey. We are on a path toward the tribulation. It's not going to get better because we vote whatever we vote. It's only going to get better once we go to heaven and be with the Lord in glory. But until then... Our job, like Noah, is to be a preacher of righteousness and to take as many people with us as we can, regardless of of what's happening in the storms and the sea of life. It's irrelevant to the goodness of God and the grace of his gospel. Amen. So, Lord, this morning, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And as we come to the table and we prepare our hearts, we ask you, Lord, That like Noah, that you would find grace with us and that we would find grace with you. Lord, may we like Noah be looking for that grace. May we find it because we're looking for it. And Lord, you've said that by by grace through faith, it it is the gift of God. And so this morning, we want to live by faith. We want to walk in that grace. We want to seek the face of God. If there's anything this morning as we come to the table that we need to repent of, then Lord, this morning, we're going to do that as we sing this song and prepare our hearts and bring the communion elements together and ready ourselves for remembering the goodness of God. And so, Lord, we bless you this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. And for any this morning, Lord, just to bring this to a point, to a head, who may not know you, who've never trusted in you, we pray that this would become for them that moment 
where they believe in Jesus and they trust in, in the provision you've given to us through him, that he has become the righteous atonement for our sins. And that if we believe in him and trust in him and repent and turn, then we know that you will be good and gracious and merciful to us, sinners, as we receive the salvation offered to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us this morning who maybe just need to do a little refresh in our own spirit and our own heart, this morning, Lord, we just renew and rededicate to you our lives. Thank you, Lord, as First John says, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. We come to the table this morning in a worthy manner to receive and remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us, for speaking to us, for giving us your word, for giving us your son. And as we worship you now and receive the table together, Lord, fill us up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's worship and then uh, pass out the elements and then we'll partake together in just a moment as Pastor Mitch comes to lead us to the table.